Lounge, this Lounge. Yo, shorty, come here. Let me give you this fly real quick, Will. Here you go. Yo, yo, my man, my man, my man. Yeah, yo, what's up, man? Yo, here you go, my man. Lyricist Lounge, hosted by De La Soul. Word. Word. Yo, up, I gotta man. be down with this shit, yo, son. Yo, check this out. All you gotta do is just call the number right there in the bottom. You can speak to anybody. You know, they probably gonna ask you for a demo, though. You know what I'm saying? Yo, I don't got a demo, yo, but I bust around for you right now, kid. Oh, word up. Yo, yo, I got skills, son. Yo, I can't, man. I can't. I gotta give out these flies real word. quick. But, yo, check this out. All you gotta do, just call that number. But for real, man, do it. Don't forget, man. Yo, don't son, you forget. don't gotta tell me twice, right, son. Yo. I'm going home. All right, yo, peace, tonight. man. Hopefully, I see you there. All right? oh, no doubt. Yo, yo, peace, man. Yo, shorty, come here real quick. Yo, yo, let me What's going on, good people? It's Ant Marshall, co-founder of the legendary Lyricist Lounge, going 30 years strong. This is part one of the Lyricist Lounge story, with part two coming soon on Fly Fidelity. Word up, 2020, y'all. Think straight. Walk us through your earliest memory of creating Lyricist Lounge. How did you become responsible for co-founding one of the most important hip-hop institutions and open mic movements? How did the lounge come about? Man, it all came about by just being young and dumb. You know, uh, 16, 15-year-olds, me and my partner, Danny Castro, we had actually, we had just robbed some clothes um interestingly enough like we had been dancers and in the scene for some time and then got down with a crew called the low lifes you know shout out to them and you know we found ourselves stealing some some clothes from a store and we got two weeks for it we got caught we had to do two weeks in jail and while we were in there you know it was kind of like you know i just had this epiphany of like we can't do this shit anymore you know what i mean like i know i couldn't i was like yo we got to do something different once we get out of here. And that's exactly what we did. You know, we came out, we had a mentor uh, named Charles Thompson. Um, He was uh, really one of the most impressionable people in our lives at that time, you know? And he said, look, I have a small studio space that I'm not using. Uh, It's a rehearsal space. You know, if you guys like, you can bring, invite some young people down and I'll invite some music industry people and let's see what happens. And literally we've been pretty much doing the same thing for the last 30 years. At the time you're a dancer, you're hitting the club scene and you're trying to get into videos during a period when dancing was still pretty big. How do you think Lyricist Lounge developed your distinction of yourself and your expectations of yourself culturally? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, I think starting with Lyricist Lounge and then kind of broadening it, broadening it to kind of hip-hop in general, Lyricist Lounge at such a young age, you know, really gave me a sense of, like, power, a sense of, you know, just, you know, you got to understand being a young black kid in New York, you're kind of invisible, right? Like, People don't see you, and the only time they see you is when they think there's some trouble going on, right? That's the only time people want to pay attention to you. You go for jobs, they're like, ah, we don't have jobs for you. You go here, we don't, you know. And so it's it's it was very interesting that the lounge really, you know, it made us visible. You know, it made us visible to the entire community, and it made us stand out. We weren't just two young dancers just along with everyone else in Washington Square Park. You know, we were like, yo, that's, yo, Danny, what's up? Yo, aunt, what's up? What y'all doing? Like, you know, where y'all going, right? What y'all got going on? We were important. And I think that was, uh, you know, a very necessary thing at at such a young age, you know, that all young people need. Um, From a hip hop standpoint, the culture itself, you know, again, 
within America and within New York, you know, at a at a time where we're coming kind of coming into the Giuliani stage, you know, you were really just seen as troublemakers. You know, and, and we weren't we weren't angels. We were definitely doing our little shit here and there, but nothing different than the white kids in the suburbs, you know, up to, you know, actually probably less trouble than the kids in the suburbs. You know, we weren't doing coke and stealing cars and doing crazy shit. You know, we were just, you know, trying to figure it out. And, you know, hip hop really created a culture that we could be a part of and kind of walk into a room filled with white executives and not feel weird, you know, knowing that all those executives were there to speak to us. And so, you know, hip hop, lyricist lounge, all of these things, man, it really just creates a certain idea of importance. If we're talking about visibility, we're talking about a time back then when a lot of dancers were becoming MCs and turning to rhymes with this big, I guess, cultural shift starting to happen for a lot of people. Were you as a dancer a part of that cultural shift? And were you thinking about transitioning and picking up the mic at that point? Absolutely. I was right in the center of that dance circle. I was right in the center of that dance circle that was transitioning into MCs, you know. Um, and, you know, basically I was a part of a group, a crew, a dance crew at the time called Jiggy. And uh, Jiggy was one of the first, like, five-person kind of hip-hop boy bands that came out in 1990. They were signed to Polygram Publishing, mm. uh, excuse me, to Polygram Records. But prior to that, we were just all dancers, so we would be in the club, like, you know, 12, 15 deep. We all had dreads. We all had, like, a little blonde streak in our hair, you know, way before Wiz Khalifa. Um, and, you know, we, we again, s- stood out, you know what I'm saying? Like, certain crews were, like, four people, five people. We would come in 12, 15 deep and then do a routine that took over the entire dance floor. So you could not miss us, you know? If you if you kind of had eyes, you definitely would see, you know, that we we brought some real energy to the clubs. And at this time, there weren't a lot of performances on stage. So the entertainment were the dancers, you know, and so I was totally a part of that. And so when Jiggy kind of Jiggy, the dance crew um, morphed into rappers, you know, two of the MCs were dancers for my, my cousin Prance Lowe, uh, my other basically my cousin Kamal. Um, they were basically dancers for special ed going around the country doing what they do. And I think at a certain point they were like, yo, let's pick up the mic. And they were a little, you know, maybe three, four years older than us. So they were kind of leading the efforts, but we all followed suit. Jiggy became a rap group, signed a polygram. I created a group with my, my partner, Chance Lover called Figures of Speech. Um, and our whole kind of crew were kind of moving towards getting more up front, you know, getting in front instead of behind the MC. And uh, the album, the Jiggy album, was create was, you know, produced by Salam Remy uh, at the tender age of 17. You know, we were all in his in his bedroom working on shit. Um, and yeah, man, it was a classic, classic period. You know, I, I think dancers just woke up like, yo, we could do this too. And we kind of made our moves. You mentioned the album of course, being produced by Salam Remy. What are you listening to at this point? What's in your headphones and influence in your navigation artistically? We are listening to, at that period, uh, Tribe Called Quest. 
without a doubt, you know, the, the beats. Again, we're dancers, right? So right. even before we're listening to the lyrics, we're listening to the beat. We're listening to the beat and what's going on, what, what energy that beat is bringing in. You know, people like Nice and Smooth at that point, you know, uh, Guru with DeWick and all those records. Like there were certain records when they came on in the club, like you better get the fuck out the way. Like if you're not a dancer, like get the fuck out the way because we're all rushing from wherever we were in the club straight to the fucking dance floor. You know, and it was it was some intense ass energy It was like a whirlpool kind of flowing right in the center you know, creating that energy. So De La Soul, absolutely, you know, and De La was kind of a, a break from some of those other things I talked about because, you know, again, some of those beats were like either, you know, real groovy kind of jazz kind of sample influence um, or like high sped, you know, um, you know, just high sped boom bap type beats, right? And when, when De La came out, it kind of made us all like stop for a second, you know, because you kind of had, it had a different melody and flow and, you know, just an overall vibe to it, you know, that we had to kind of be like, Oh, wait a minute, this is different. And then when the music videos started coming out and, you know, and, and mind you, you know, art reflects life, life reflects art. You know, we were already dressing that way. Right. It wasn't like, we saw De La's videos and then we were like, oh shit, we got to dress that way. More likely, they were watching us, right? Because they were from Long Island, we were from New York. And so all of the kids, all of the like, the kids hanging out in the village, all of the club kids that were going out since 89, like, we were already on that vibe. We were already being different. We were already wearing house, you know, clown shoes because it was house music, you know? And so... Some of that was already there. They just made it mainstream. They made it popular. And when it came out, it was like, oh, shit, like we're being represented, you know. And then we we started dressing even weirder, you know. <laughs> so it was a cool inspiration. Can you remember experiencing your first real downtown New York City hip hop event? What was that experience like for the first time as a young Anthony Marshall? What event or what club? would I attach that question to? I mean, there were, first of all, I, I know, you know, from an international standpoint, that question is kind of loaded, right? It's like, oh, wow, downtown, New York, real hip hop. But folks got to understand that, you know, when you're born and raised in, in New York, you're born and raised in hip hop. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've been going to hip hop events since a kid and there was no real like downtown hip hop experience. I lived downtown, you know, although I lived in Brooklyn, yeah. I was I was downtown all the time. So Sheets and Pillows was a dope ass hip hop party. They were, you know, I can't even go in. Quando's was another dope. And I'll, maybe I'll, I'll rest there. Quando's was probably one of the best fucking hip hop parties in the early, early 90s. And it's infamous with the uh, story of I believe it's where it happened, where KRS threw p.m dawn off the stage mm. right and so this was one of those hardcore and he has a video too him and jamal ski god bless they they had a they shot a video there quandos and it was a weird ass club in between like you went through like into a regular building but then in the basement it was a weird setup but it was a dope ass experience and you know i wouldn't trade it for the world but what i will tell you 
is it wasn't it wasn't as pretty as motherfuckers one of you know it, it wasn't as like i don't know i'm trying to put it in words mm. like you could lose your fucking life that night or you could have the best night of your life and that was that was hip-hop in the early 90s you know what i'm saying so when you think of things in that context like you're living on the edge and because you're living on the edge you're having a ball and mm. it's a weird concept but like street kids in new york that's just how we live you know coming home at four in the morning falling asleep on the train with a box cutter in your hand in your pocket just in case someone try to steal your shit people stealing your clothes on the way home you smaller than others but you dress flyer than them they want to rob you you know it was all about instinct and it was all about you know like who are you down with you know i, I would travel two hours to these clubs i used to live near coney island going all the way to the city you know this 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 was uh this was a dedication how many of those memories are memories from the tunnel specifically mm. Well, you know, lots of memories from the tunnel, but honestly, like, I used to go to the tunnel more on the house music nights. I wasn't fucking with the tunnel on the hip-hop nights like that. I went a couple times, but, like, I wasn't that gangster back then, <laughs> you know? I was definitely more of, like, club kid, you know, village, like, those type of vibes. But right, right. The tunnel was, like, you had to kind of you had to kind of get ganged up to go into the tunnel you know during those hardcore like Funkmaster flex that Funkmaster flex period you were not just walking in the tunnel like nothing you know it was like fort knox just getting in there you know you're going through all these securities and they're you know like if you if you were able to just look at the box of weapons that they would take from people in front of the tunnel, you would understand <laughs> what I'm talking about. You could lose your life or you could have the best time of your life. This is when Vin Diesel is bouncer as well. I guess so. Yeah, and it's <laughs> funny, yo, somebody somebody just brought that up and I like flash back to him being security back then. I had never that was put, me last put week that we together. Yeah, last week, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, I remember him. So, you start lyricist lounge as a way to facilitate what's going on outside. You want to make this platform and make it so that people outside in these ciphers are able to display their skills inside of the venue physically. What are your earliest memories of Washington Square Park and the legendary ciphers? Mm, 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 mm. Um, I would say one of my first memories of Washington Square Park would be buying a nickel bag from the Dread. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before there were ciphers and all that shit, it was the Dreads in the park with the weed. You know what I'm saying? Like those, and my mom was Rasta, you know, grew up with weed around me all my life. You know, though dreads in Washington Square Park are the ones who created the vibe. You know what I'm saying? So you would, so, and, and I, I don't think it's talked about enough, you know what I'm saying? Because think about it, all these different people who smoke all coming to the park at the same time, that's where you get the mix, you know? Mm. That's where the mix was created. And then once you were there, you had the skaters over there. You kind of had like the the fake homeless rich white kids. I don't know what they call them over mm -hmm. here. You had the poets. You had NYU students. And then you had the backpackers, you know what I'm saying, that were there to, to cop some weed, to hand out some flyers, and then, you know, to jump in a cipher. 
And quite honestly, because I wasn't re- I wasn't an MC, I wasn't really always around the ciphers. You know what I'm saying? Like I wasn't a I wasn't a cipher kid. You know, I knew everybody in it. Everyone knew me, but I'd come, I'd dip in, I'd, I'd peep who's who's rocking, and I'd dip out. You know, I had other things to do, but it was a uh, it was a place like no other, man. It was a place like no other, and Giuliani and quality of life totally fucked that up. I think there's a lot to be said about the gentrification you're talking about and, of course, the changes that would impact New York City later on in the future. It's a dialogue we will have in this interview as we navigate through the history of Lyricist Lounge. In its earliest days, the lounge was promoted as the session, wasn't it? It was an event populated by upcoming artists hungry for their time to shine. But was there always an audience at the beginning? (laughs) <laughs> no not at all bro nope 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 no nope. we had to beg people to come like we probably did it at 45 orchard street which was our first space we probably did it about four weeks <clears throat> before we realized we had to go you know maybe a little longer but we really wasn't there that long like our first session maybe like three people came you know me danny and probably one other person then, you know, the next week, you know, six came. Then the next week, it just kind of kept growing. You know, by the fifth or sixth week, we had about 70 people. The people were falling out of the door. You know, it was a lot of weed smoke. And we realized, like, we can only do this for, for we can't do this much longer. You know what I'm saying? At some point, someone's going to get hurt. It was, a, it was a very interesting time period. This is a time in history when nightlife travelled via flyers and word of mouth, wasn't it? Nobody knew back then that flyers would, you know, decades later be preserved for prosperity because they weren't intended to be, were they? The logo on a flyer was magic and, you know, for yourself, I would imagine it being often, you know, vaguely tribal. How hands-on were you with the design of the Lyricist Lounge flyers? Oh, man, unfortunately, very hands-on because <laughs> they were... <laughs> They were not that great, you know. I um, I had worked at uh, Kinko's Copies, which is a very popular uh, chain here in the states and probably internationally. And um, you know, basically, I feel like they try to jerk me around. And, you know, I went for the for the um, you know, for the interview, and they were like, "All right, well, yeah, I mean, I guess we can hire you, but the only position we have open is a uh, is a position that starts at." two in the morning and it ends at 11 a.m right so i was like what time they're like yeah 2 a.m to 11 a.m it's like the the graveyard grave 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 graveyard shift right and i was like you know what fuck it like i i'm used to going to clubs all the time i'll try it and you know i would basically go out i go party i would leave the club like one o'clock 1 30 and then i'd go to work and what I learned is that Kinko's After Dark, basically, is where all the promoters would go. Because all the promoters after the club would come to Kinko's to get their flyers. Or before they go to the club, they'd get their flyers. And so I met a lot of the promoters that way. Um, I met a lot of graphic designers that way. Especially one f- guy named Tony, who ended up being a good friend. And he taught me how to make flyers on some of the oldest fucking Macs I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um or with a, a program called Type Styler. And that's how a lot of the first flyers were made, the classic uh, bad boy uh, launch party flyer and 
just every any everything from ninety one till about ninety four, I was kind of making. Could you remember the lineup on the first flyer? Well, that's easy because there was no lineup. <laughs> like, there was <laughs> there was no one important, you know, at that time um, that we could put on a flyer. That we were we were more important than everyone who performed. And I say that with all due respect to everyone who's a fucking legend now. But at that time, Lyricist Lounge was more important to be on the flyer. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, the lounge, I'm going. It didn't matter who was performing or this or that because, mind you, you were going because you wanted to get on the mic. You know what I'm saying? So the draw was the was the ability to get on the mic and be seen. And that concept, although an open mic is not a new concept, but back then for hip-hop, when clubs were not allowing hip-hop in the club, this was groundbreaking. What? I could get on stage? I could rhyme? Y'all could play my beat? Like, that was the world to people who were only used to freestyling in ciphers. I could imagine a lounge being as chaotic in its earliest venues as it was outside on the streets, as you say, and very much reflective of the boom of those hungry MCs waiting their turn. When was the first time you thought of using a host as a way to filter that experience and maintain a more contained format and event? Uh, So our first year in 91, we were at 45 Orchard Street. Our second year, we moved to a venue named The Muse, which used to be called Mars. It was a famous club in in New York City. Everyone should do their research on Mars. Um, But after Mars, it was bought by a new owner, and and they changed the name to The Muse. Our first event, I think I hosted that event. And Mm. mind you, like I just did too much back then. Like I'm doing the fire, I'm promoting, I'm hosting, I'm getting sponsorship, Danny's promoting and doing all, you know. And so we were just doing everything. And so I think it was, and I was an artist. So, like, I would, like, host, disappear, come back with a different shirt on, perform, take the shirt off, come back, host. I was like, this shit is stupid. Like, I can't do it. I can't do it all. And so it was, uh, you know, in our in our interest to, you know, in our to our benefit, to really find someone that could at least man that part so we could focus on producing the event. And I went to high school with a young man named Dante, uh, better known as Most Def or formerly known as Most Def, now known as Yasin Bey. Uh, we were both in high school in a, in a program called Talent Unlimited uh, where I took uh, production, film production, and he took acting. Um, and, you know, through, I'm not even remembering who. I reconnected with him through, but yeah, he agreed to do it. He was a part of a group called UTD. Um, and yeah, he came through and hosted this, our second show there at the Muse. And it was fucking incredible. And, um, you know, a young girl came out and performed that blew everyone away. She was uh, 14 years old. She went by the name of Inga. Um, and I think... Yeah, her name was Inga, and her group's name was, uh, no, her real name is Inga. Her rap name was Queen Nefertiti from a group called Rotten Candy. And and we were all floored by that shit. Years later, she became known as Foxy Brown, you know? And so it was um, that type of vibe of, like, New Jacks, New Jacks, New Jacks coming through, New Jacks coming through, but then years later, seeing how they blossomed into these superstars. 
Who were some of the artists that gave you the dopest performances? Who gave you the most memorable performances and would always make it so an event was sold out? It was always a sold out event when these people were performing. Most deaf, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Most, you know, quality. Like later, again, those early years, no one had a name, you know. Um, and so we, what we would do, and so just chronologically speaking about this, after the Muse, we moved to a few different spaces, but we ended up at in 95, 96 at a space called Tramps. And Tramps was uh, uh, the largest venue that we used at that time, probably holding about 800 six to eight hundred people and that's when we were like okay you know we got this format down the showcase you know we need you know we got we, we you know we found this unique way of drawing people in by having a host you know um we organized ourselves a bit more created a company called collage projects where lyricist lounge was were one of the projects and you know Again, looking at the different artists that we respected, Slick Rick, De La Soul, KRS-One, Jay Rue, Guru, you know, we just started tapping into them, man. You know, Q-Tip, all of these folks are like legends. So it didn't matter really who else was performing, but once they saw, you know, Q-Tip rocking and De La, you know, and they, they weren't even really rocking, you know, like we were very smart about how we did it, like, if we if we were to say, yo, Dela, we want y'all to perform at the lounge, they would have been like, no problem, forty grand. You know what I'm saying? At that time, mm. we we would never be able to afford them. You know, we would never be able to afford them. So when we said, well, we only want you to host. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to perform. We would love if you could at least do one song, or spit a freestyle. But what we really want you to do is just host. And that concept really kind of separated us from anyone else. Because now we had the legends, we had the up-and-coming artists, and then eventually we figured out that we need someone from that moment who was hot. And that was pretty much the package which which represented the family, you know, kind of the hip-hop family, the old, the new, and everything in between. Was it always as crystal clear and as easy for you to understand as it is now um, <laughs> the difference in your perspective of Lyricist Lounge and the perspective of everybody else, did you always know how spiritual of an event the lounge was for so many people outside of yourself and Danny? Hmm. Man, that is a beautiful question, bro. Thanks, I've man. never I've never been asked that. And, like, anybody listen, just know, like, I'm super spiritual. You know, I'm not religious, but, like, super super spiritual and i don't think i ever really put that in context you know i did know that we were conduits you know mm -hmm. that we were in a in a divinely way being kind of positioned to create a door for people to go through you know and that period between like 93 and 98 was an incredible door for everyone that everyone loves now you know what I'm saying, to walk through. So from your Wordsworth and Most and Quali and Forte and, you know, Mr. Man and all the Bush babies and, you know, I could go on and on and on. Cellar Dwellers, MOP, you know, The Roots, you know, we did their, their album release party where no one, you know, people knew them, but they were just like, 
Oh, oh, those guys who used to beat drums on the corner from Philly, oh, where, where, they made an album? You know what I'm saying? They weren't, like, the legendary Roots crew, right? They were just, like, you know, it, they were just some guys. And so, yes, bro, I, I in hindsight, I understand it now. Uh, and not only do I understand it, like, I know what to do with it. You know, remember, we were kids, like, we were 15, 16, 17, and had no idea what the fuck we were really doing and had a minimal amount of help. You know, our sponsors were our mothers. You know, then we learned to sponsor game and we started getting help. Paisley Park and Big Beat were some of our first sponsors, you know, and we kind of moved on from there. But nah, bro, it's um, it's 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 a trip. It's a, even how let me take it back based on your question. Let me take it back. 1990, I go to a nightclub called Roseland. It's a huge club, 4,000 people. I go by myself. And, you know, I, I was like, I didn't need nobody. I didn't need to go with nobody. And I, you know, I went out. I knew I would meet friends there. I knew every, everybody would go there anyway. So I knew I would meet up with everybody I know. While there, I'm dipping in and out of different circles here and there. And I, I guess I, I don't even remember, but I guess I danced with some girls or some shit. Well, once the club ended, and normally it would end with like a floodgate opening up behind the club, you know, and this is like 45th Street between 9th and 10th. Yeah. And so 4,000 young people would just flood out, you know what I'm saying, at 4 a.m. And there'd be people talking and folks trying to get numbers and all this shit. And I remember I'm talking to this girl. And I'm going to have to write a movie about this shit. But <laughs> I'm talking to this girl. And I just see her fucking eyeballs fucking get so big. And I like kind of turned around. And she was like, run, puppy, run. So that's going to be the name of the movie. Run, puppy, run. But like, <laughs> yo, I turned around and it was 12 fucking big ass Puerto Rican dudes running after me. And I bolted wow. to the end, to the, towards the end of the corner. But then I turned around. I was trying to run through the crowd. If you've ever run from a group of people running after you, something happens to your heart. Right. You know, just like when you're working out and you're doing like you're trying to do 50 pushups and you get to like 45 and your brain goes, yo, I can't do no more. Right. Something happened and my legs was just like, yo, fuck it. Take the beating. And I dropped and I took this beating from 12 dudes stomping on me, beating on me, blah, blah, blah. And somebody came over like, yo, yo, leave them alone, leave them alone. And they stopped for a second and I fucking jackrabbit jumped up and bounced to the end of the block. I get to the end of the block and there's a train station. I'm like, ah, fuck. I, I run down the train station. Because I thought I could jump on the train and get away. There's normally some cops down there or whatever the fuck. As soon as I get to the bottom of the stairwell, the gate, there's a gate that's locked. So I can't, so the train station is basically not open. And I'm, basically there's a gate and behind me a staircase. And at the top of the staircase, 12 hungry ass Puerto Ricans that want to kill me. And so I'm super skinny at this point. And I look to the bottom of the gate and I see this little crack. And I just, I'll never forget. I was like, if I could get my head through, I'll be able to get my body through. And my fucking skinny ass, like, my head got through and I, like, shuffled my way all the way through that shit. I've run to the other end of the train station. 
and it wasn't my train. So I went, I got out of the train. I don't know why I should have stayed in the train, but I got out of the train and was like, I'll walk to the D train. I'm getting into detail. Anyone from New York, y'all understand what I'm talking about. But it was like the, the A train. And I was like, I can't take this train. I need the D. So I'm going to get out and I'm going to walk up to the D train. As soon as I got out the train, I saw my my homie who lives where I live, two hours away in near Coney Island, Brighton Beach. His name was Little Mike. Me and Little Mike started going to nightclubs together at 14. And normally, he would be my road dog going to the club all the time. For some reason, not tonight, right? Mm-hmm. But I pop out, and I'm like, yo, what's up, Mike? And he's like, yo, what the fuck? Yo, we were just looking for you. We saw that you were getting beat down. We were the ones that came over there like, yo, leave him alone. Like, yeah, are you okay? Are you okay? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. He's like, yo, that's fucking crazy, bro. He's like, yo, yo, this is my boy Danny. And I was like, yo, what up? What up? How are you? And I was like, yo, but, you know, this shit is fucking. So that's how I met Danny. Like, have you if told I, that story before? I have, but it's like it always fucks me up when I talk about it because right. on some mystic shit, on some spiritual shit, right? Everything has a place. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And everything is in divine order. And if I didn't get jumped by those 10 people, or 12 or whatever amount of people. If I didn't get jumped, if I didn't, all the time it took for me to get away, go into the train, run to the other side, pop up, see my friend. Because if my friend wasn't there, I still would have just bypassed daddy. My friend happened to be walking with him. And that's how we met. Ten years later, we did the biggest event of our life. 4,000 people hosted by Dave Chappelle, performances by most exhibit, uh, Coco Brothers, you name it. And it was at Roseland. And I told that story in front of 4,000 people. And it was like mm. when Volume 2 had just come out, we did the biggest tour of our lives. And it was very emotional, bro. I was like, yo, right here 10 years ago, <laughs> you know, me and my man, you know, set out on this journey. And, you know, to bring it back around and, and be able to celebrate that with everyone. Yeah, man. Hindsight is twenty twenty in twenty twenty, and I'm definitely appreciating these thirty years and and thirty years more to come. You needed those beatings to be able to get those blessings later on, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Good way. You created a space to express hip hop, and in doing that, became responsible for, of course, some of the biggest and most unique artists in the hip hop lexicon. How many artists at the start of the lounge were either artists? that yourself and the audience predicted to become legends or were artists that were already legends? Wow. Um, well, the, the the artists that were obvious at legends, we already knew, right? Like the Slick Ricks and all of them was were obvious. As far as the upcomers, you know, we were kind of like, I don't, I don't want to say we were assholes because we weren't treating people like assholes, but like, it's an asshole move not to care. You know what I'm saying? I didn't really care. Like, if you were on your way to becoming a legend, that was awesome. My job was done. Back mm. to the fucking cesspool of fucking up-and-coming MCs. You know? It wasn't about the legends. It was truly about, like... Like, I, it wasn't about the diamond. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't about the diamond. It was about the coal. It was about the motherfuckers that were still trying to shine their shit off. You know what I'm saying? But and so my radar 
or I would have been the richest guy in hip hop. Think about it, right? Like I would have signed everybody. <laughs> you know, I would have signed Eminem, Most Def, The Roots, you name it. Right? Would have been the richest people in hip hop. But that wasn't my goal to be the richest. It wasn't my goal to be, you know, like Diddy. You know what I'm saying? It was my goal to help people. It was my goal to be a stepping stone for artists. Like we were going to be a nonprofit. You know, we were going to be a nonprofit organization just to help people. Um, but yeah, I mean, certain people, you could tell, you know what I'm saying? Eminem had that fire. You know, most had that fire. Um, the Roots was still a bit backpack. Like, again, you got to understand, back then there was no, there was no mainstream hip hop. Mm. You know, EPMD was making songs like The Crossover. Talking about, you know what I'm saying, like you selling out because you got a little R&B singing in your fucking record. So mainstream wasn't necessarily a goal for anyone. And if you made it there, more likely we weren't really fucking with you anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like you crossed over. And so the idea of like a legend or a star or like, you know what I'm saying? Any of those things were kind of like... You're no longer in the underground club. We only fucked with the underground. <laughs> like <laughs> we were all about the underground. And there weren't, you know, maybe you were like an underground legend, like a Wordsworth, or you know what I'm saying? Certain folks were like underground legends. But beyond that, we didn't really care. It's like, oh, you made it? All right, cool. Dope. Have fun, bro. Like, you know, come back to the session when you're ready. You know, it's the gym. Like, in the gym, nobody gives a fuck that you made it. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. the coach of these boxers, when those boxers make it, they're not all like, oh, my God, it's you. You know what I'm saying? It's custom model. It's like, yo, like, you know, welcome back, but go clean my fucking shoes, right? Like, and I'm not saying I would ever say that to anyone, <laughs> but what I'm saying is just like, right. you know, and clean my shoes, that's a bit disrespectful. That's not what I mean, but it's like... just It's how, a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Yeah, just like a right. coach in a gym would have you cleaning up the mat and cleaning the gym, right? Just because you're a star and you come back to the gym, don't forget where you started, right. you know? And so in a lot of ways, that's always been the perspective. Like, that's great that everyone, you know, you're this renowned person now, but let's not forget where I, where I met you. And let's let's still hold that level of respect for each other as humans you know because a lot of this shit goes to people's heads can you talk about the can you talk a bit about the commonplace that was an A&R or an industry person signing an artist back then at the lounge can you talk about some of the artists who got signed as a result of however many percentage of industry people were in the audience at the lounge man I, I would say everyone got signed eventually like Everyone got signed. If they didn't sign themselves, then they got signed by some major label or, you know, one of the artists that then blew up, then went back and signed someone else. I mean, Eminem was unsigned at that point when he came to, to perform with us in 96. No one knew him. He was, you know, the one white boy in the club, you know what I'm saying, to a, to a, a large extent. He was coming in, and again, to put things in perspective, hip-hop between... 89 and 95 96 97 was a very closed off culture you know what i'm saying if you were a white boy in the circle people were like yo like who are you here with you know what i'm saying because you may get robbed 
and it wasn't on some racist shit. It's just like back in those days, the the week would get eaten. You know what I'm saying? And if you seem like you wasn't some thugged out dude, and if you look like someone you could who could get picked on, you'd get picked on. And so he was there under the under the protection of outsiders. You know what I'm saying? And totally like in an element. And when he got on, bro, he just, he murdered it. He just completely shattered that shit. And everybody was like, who the fuck is this? You know, at the, before that, it was all about Young Z and all the outsiders that were there and still was after. But M came on and completely dominated that shit, you know. And so, but my point is, he blew up. He became extremely important. And then he went back and signed who? 50 Cent which both of them performed at a show of ours in 98 before knowing each other. So there's a classic photo going around where they're both in the photo together with like AL and words and a bunch of other people, but they really didn't know each other like that. Fast forward, you know, we are where we are, but that was the culture. You got signed, you went back and you signed somebody else. And that's why there was so much, um, uh, what's the word? There was so much. People were. Yeah, there was so much, so many possibilities, you know, like the possibilities were in the air. Like every minute somebody was getting signed, signed, signed. Yo, I got signed. I got this deal. I put in this, you know, and then when Fat Beats came out again, anybody could just sign themselves and put out music, mm -hmm. you know. And then, you know, there were a number of other kind of independent labels that would help people, Red Distribution and TVT and, you know, um, uh, Priority. There were a lot of, like, budding. And then Ruckus, right? And so everybody got signed, man, <laughs> for the most part. Everybody made it. We did our job. Is there a timeline for yourself as to what year specifically was the most innovative and competitive for Lyricist Lounge? Do you, do you have a favorite year? Man, it was consistent, bro. That shit never, that shit never stopped. <laughs> it yeah. never stopped. Like you, you know, hung, a hungry MC is a hungry MC, and they're always around. They even to this day, you know, what I'm saying there's somebody hungry as fuck that wants to make it. You know, poverty in America and internationally, and sometimes it really just shifts, right? Like we did an event in South Africa in Josie um, about two years ago, and that shit was packed with hungry MCs. You know. And so that aggressive nature of wanting to get it is consistent. That's a main line, you know, that's a main line throughout the culture. <clears throat> we just gave it a name. What about the battles back then? Everybody knows that the lounge was a battle-ready place for an aggressive nature if anybody wanted to take it there. Do you, you did often on occasion see MCs battling, of course. Could you talk about your favorite and most intense battles happening at the lounge? <laughs> Well, every, everybody wants to talk about the, the Supernatural and Craig G battle, of course. Um, and that was, you know, one that gets talked about and talked about and talked about. And, you know, the, the story is simple. Um, we were doing our biggest event at that time at the New Music Seminar uh, at the Sheraton Hotel it, in, the, in their grand ballroom, which held about... I guess about 1200 people and it wasn't just a regular 1200 people. It was 1200 music industry people, um, you know, that all came to see who, who were the hottest motherfuckers out, 
and we had spent a lot of time negotiating this deal. We weren't making any real money out of it. You know, we weren't charging people at the door, but we we had got KRS to host the event. We've been promoting it for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then I think like maybe an hour before the event, KRS called and he was like, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm still in the studio. Let me not play with his voice. He may come get me. I think he's still mad at me. I hope he's not. But, you know, he was like, um, I can't make it or I can't make it right now. You know, I'm in the studio. Um, I'm wrapping up or wherever he was. He was wrapping up, but he was going to send a super Nat to come host for him. And at the time, like straight up and there's no disrespect to anybody. Super Nat, you know, I love you, bro. But I was disappointed. You know what I'm saying? Like. I was I felt disrespected to a certain degree because we were lyricist lounge and the whole concept was about having legendary artists host the event. You know what I'm saying? So to me it was like it's not up to you to just send somebody as a replacement for you. Like you either come in or you're not. You know, was my perspective. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell him this, but you know, I felt like, damn, you know, we're just one of our biggest shows. Like, what do you mean you're not coming and you're sending this other guy? Um, and you know, me and Nat had kind of known each other, maybe somewhat, I don't, you know, um, actually we, we knew each other pretty well at that point because he was signed to a label named palace records and palace had brought us in to kind of handle marketing and all this stuff. And so we had known each other somewhat well at that point, but he came and he, you know, I was like, all right, if he's going to host, let's make him, I'll have him co-host and our host with him. And so as soon as we got on stage, we started talking. And I had heard some rumbling about a battle that was supposed to happen that night uh, between him and Craig G at the Bobito show on the, you know, Stretch and Bob show. Right. And uh, and so I just nonchalantly asked him, like, yo, so, you know, as a host would, right, with someone like that on stage where the whole audience knows him and the hip hop community knows about this battle more than I did. I wasn't following this shit. And I was like, yo, so it was a legit question. So, like, what's up with this battle that I keep hearing about? You know, I heard you and Craig G was supposed to bottle. And I'm not a big battle person, you know, or or you would see Lyricist Lounge presents X battle, X versus X for the last 20 years. But I wasn't really into that because sometimes it leads to fights, it leads to bad, you know, bad energy. And I was all about positivity. So but I asked him the question, and he was like, yeah, I don't even remember. You know, you can go watch Freestyle the Doc to see exactly what he said. But mm-hmm. all of a sudden, someone, I think I said, well, well, he was like, yeah, we're supposed to battle in some, some, And I was like, well, maybe if he's here, y'all could do it here. And somebody, it was either him or somebody else on the mic, and was like, yo, Craig, if you're here, come to the stage. I didn't say it, but I proposed it, right? And there's nothing wrong with fucking proposing a fucking battle at a real hip-hop event like ours. Especially if you're going to do it that night anyway, maybe we can do it here. Mm. And so Craig comes on stage. uh, The rest is history. And the following of that was really just kind of me being hated hardcore from KRS-One by KRS-One and super nat for for quite some time you know they thought i set it up they thought we i don't which i don't understand it because i didn't even know he was coming to set it up i would need to know you're coming i would need to reach out to craig to be there you know 
Um, and that has been the story running for a long time. You know what I'm saying? But it was classic, and I think the people appreciated it. I think it went down in history. I think it was, you know, it was a, it was a the beginning of a lot of challenges for Supernat because a lot of things kind of went downhill, at least in that year for him. Um, he may contribute a lot of that to the battle or not, but yeah, man, that was one of the most historic battles we've ever hosted. Absolutely. When a new generation talks about battles in hip-hop, there aren't many as legendary as Craig G versus Super Nat. Have you spoken to Chris in recent years? When was the last time you spoke to KRS? <laughs> I haven't. I okay. haven't spoke with Mr. Chris in a long time. And shout out to you, KRS, if you're listening. Yes, this is Ann Marshall. I'm hoping you're hearing the story of my side. Uh, and yeah, man, let's, let's mend this shit and, and make some additional history happen because... Although we ended up working with him again after that event, it, he would ask if I st like somebody who was working for me. He would ask them, "Hey, is that is that guy Ant Marshall still working with you guys?" And the guy would be like, "Well, yes, sir. You know, he's our boss. You know what I'm saying?" So it was weird, but you know, he still came out. He still did shows with us. We were still able to continue doing shows. But I was always just like, "Why are you so mad at me, though?" You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like. You put MC Shan, MC Shan's career in a fucking casket. You know what I'm saying? Like you are the battle king. You threw PM Dawn off a motherfucking stage. You know what I'm saying? Like I may have proposed the question, but I didn't lose the battle. That ain't mm. my fault. You know what I'm saying? That's not my fault. Like I proposed the fucking question, and at the end of the day, this is hip hop. This is fucking gladiator school. You know what I'm saying? So it's unfair to be, you know. Um, it's unfair to be kind of one of the leaders of the gladiator community community, but then be mad when one of your kind of underlings doesn't win. You know, that's just not how it works. But shout out to him. You mentioned the term gladiator school. What are the gladiators at that time appearing at the lounge as a guest would have been Biggie? What's the story behind Puffy challenging the crowd <laughs> about <all> Biggie? <laughs> Well, again, you, t you you know, anytime you talk about hip hop and you talk about it in the context of Lyricist Lounge, you have to understand that these legends were not legends at that time. Right. Right. Biggie had one record called Party and Bullshit. Nobody really knew who he was. I mean, they knew him, but they didn't really know him. This was the first time the, the hip hop communities probably saw him rock, you know, and that was at the Lyricist Lounge in 1993 at the Village Gate as the launch party for bad boy but yeah he started um they started you know whatever like puff is a motherfucker puff is like the don king of hip-hop you know and i i say that with all due respect you know but he was up there hyping shit up you know what i'm saying he knew anybody that got on that stage was gonna get crushed because big was a fucking problem you know what i'm saying from his size to the way he looked to like the his verses the shit he had like he was so comfortable in the pocket with his shit like man like he could win a battle by just talking to you so like you know it was it was a setup and this one dude got on with a kufi and tried to like you know what i'm saying y'all let's see the footage we're gonna put it out pretty soon but like he crushed that dude and that's mm. the verse that is on our second album it's called 16 bars by biggie and um it's like oh y'all niggas better hit the f it, it was just it's an incredible fucking verse if y'all got the album go listen to it but he, he completely murdered this fucking dude, and it was classic. What about the Master Race and Boogie battle? 
Man, shout out to Master Ace. It was um and Boogie. That was um that was hard. That was a hard battle to watch. You know what I'm saying? Um I was rooting for as much as I like Boogie, I was rooting for Ace because he was a fucking legend, you know. Mm. And I think he just got caught off guard that night, you know. And I don't think he's a battle rapper. You know, you gotta be a battle rapper to battle. Or you gotta be at least prepared, you know. And this was an unprepared battle. Remember, URL and all these battles that happen now, these motherfuckers are training before they get there. Mm. You know what I'm saying? This was like, he knew that Boogie would be there. You know what I'm saying? Because they were both on the bill. But he just wasn't prepared. He wasn't prepared. And and Boogie took it. Boogie took it. And sometimes, you know, what's, what's, what's the sad part? Because my bar for lyricism is so high. Like, when you go back and you listen to some of these lyrics, you know, like, even like the Craig G Super Nat battle, and shouts to Craig, you know you're my brother. But, like, when I listen to it, it, it's not like these lyrics are, like, they're not, like, a 12. You know what I'm saying? Especially when you freestyle. You're just kind of coming off the head. Battles are about vibes. not and At least battles back then. You know, battles back then were about part lyric, part vibe, and part audience. You know what I'm saying? It's like snapping. You know what I'm saying? And I don't know, whatever they call snapping where you're from, it's like teasing, right? When somebody teases you, they're not necessarily saying the most hurtful shit, right? They're like, ha ha, you know, your hair, your hair goes over your eye, right? Like, that's not a fucking real disappointing thing to hear. But when you're a kid, that shit sounds fucked up. It's more the huh-huh, like that shit is the shit that gets on you, right? And so that's how battles were back then. Like, there were some lyrics, but it was like, you know, I'm going to just get on and pop on your shit. Look at your sneakers. They smell like shit. Look at your hair. and then the, the, You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not it's not level 12 lyrics, but it's it's how you finesse that stage and how you finesse the mm. crowd. Um, and quite honestly, Honestly, I think the Super Nat battle, to go back to that for a hot sec, had more mm. to do with Craig being the underdog and people being tired of Super Nat because one year prior, he had won the Superman uh, battle, Clark Kent Superman battle. And then from there, he got a record deal with East West Records. He had his own radio show. He had all this shit. And back then on some hip hop New York shit, I think motherfuckers was like, yo, who the fuck is this dude? You know? I'm saying, like, where did he come from all of a sudden? Nobody would have believed it, right? Yeah, they're like, yo, what the fuck is going on? You know what I'm saying? Like, we got all the real MCs here. Like, why is he getting all the shine? You know? And although I didn't feel that way, I've, I've, because I'm a platform for everyone. Like, I want everyone to win. And this is what was disappointing to me, people feeling like I had it out for anyone. No. Like, if you feel that way, you really just don't know me. I, I could give a fuck about a battle. I wanted everybody to shine. I don't want nobody to tear nobody down. I felt bad for for Nat after that. You know, I spent years trying to talk to him and get him to understand that, yo, it wasn't personal. I didn't do it to set you up, you know. But It's hip-hop. It's hip-hop. But being an underdog, you know what I'm saying, and getting too much flash in New York, that's typical to get hurt. You know what I'm saying? Again, I'll just explain to you, me dancing with a girl got me jumped by 12 niggas. You know what I'm saying? You think you're not going to get booed in New York after you done got all this fame over the year? Like, 
people people they are haters for a reason back then we didn't have names for it you know what i'm saying now we have names for it oh it's a hater yeah but back then that's what the fuck it was you know what i'm saying people was hating him because he was getting all his shine and you had hecklers in the back craig g craig g like that's all it took that's all it took for the rest of new york to support a new yorker you know what i'm saying that's just what people do is human nature um, but same with, 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 with Boogie, Boogie and, and Master Ace, bro. It was difficult to watch, but the best part of that night was the host, the, the host who jumped in. Cause he wasn't even the real host for the night. Motherfucking ice tea did <laughs> motherfucking ice tea just happened to be in the motherfucking club and got on, was on stage. I don't know who asked him to host it, but this motherfucker did the illest intro of my life. And was like, what's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the motherfucking Lyricist Lounge. And this ain't no pussy-ass BET motherfucking battle, I tell you that. What you about to see right now is the motherfucking illest motherfucker you've ever seen in your life. Motherfucking Master Ace. And a young nigga I've never heard of named Boogie from Virginia. <laughs> and before I go, let me just say, if there's any bitches in the back that want... If there's any bitches in the house that want to sell pussy, I'm going to be by the bar. you know cover your cover the ears of the kids but it was the funniest shit at that time he got us all hyped up and um and it was it was an incredible battle man it was an incredible battle it was a moment you talking about artists that would travel down from coasts to lyricist lounge it reminds me of the time that fat joe was infamously booed at the good life cafe in la what kind of crowd did the lyricist lounge hold was it a tough crowd we we trained our crowd from early on like one thing i used to say is like give it up if you like what you heard right right we don't do booing here like it's not the apollo give it up if you like what you heard because guess what if you perform and at the end of your performance it's crickets then that's a fucking sign for you to go back to the studio you know mm. what i'm saying booing is one way but booing is like the quickest way to kill somebody you know, people don't make it back to the stage after booing. But after silence, you humbly walk off and, and come back again. And so we had trained the crowd around like, yo, just clap if you like it. You know what I'm saying? If you don't like it, don't. And they'll get the same point. They'll get it. But at least we don't got to like, you know, we're a community. That's the difference. You know what I'm saying? We're a community and we don't treat our co- And then again, back to the battles and all that shit. That's why I was always thrown off. It's like, no, that we don't do that. That's not our thing to set people up and, and fuck people's careers up. Like, this is life. It's not just art, you know? Um, so, yeah. What about these Instagram battles? Have you been tuning in and, and enjoying the energy of these online Instagram battles lately? I haven't. I haven't. I haven't. But I will say, once again, shout out to URL. Um, that story that I was telling you about, or that venue, The Muse, which used to be called Mars... When I was going to Mars, there was a guy named there was a guy named Beasley that was a promoter there. <clears throat> and I was, you know, 15, 16, same age I keep talking about. And this club that was mostly white people and weird kind of dressing people and all kind of like mixed crowds. He was mm-hmm. the one black promoter there and he had blonde hair and he was super tall, like six feet, six foot something. And we took a liking to each other and became the homie. And, you know, he would let us into his club. So he did a party at Mars called Trip. 
and it was like the one real hip-hop event at mars mars was five different levels all different types of music on each floor well fast forward the partner to uh to to smack his name is eric beasley and he is the cousin of beasley or brother i think he's the cousin of beasley who used to run that event so everything is tied in you know what i'm saying everything is tied in so i although i don't watch all the battles i have so much respect for them their journey has been amazing like seeing them with motherfucking like billboards with these MCs going against each other like they've built something very 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 special um and i, I really look forward to them going as far as they can with it and it's all very much a product of what you built with lyricist lounge of course yeah i mean it's you know beasley's like my cousin so the, to me url is like lyricist lounge's cousin you know we are, yeah. we all in this shit together, and although we haven't been very active, we're like the OGs now. We're thirty years old as a brand, you know. Uh, but you know, at the same time, you know, we're we're really supportive of all of the different movements that are going on. Speaking of movements, at that time, Raucous Records would have been one of the most trailblazing and forward-thinking rap labels out there. How does Lyricist Lounge Volume One come about with Raucous? Ah, uh, Lyricist Lounge Volume One was a culmination of all the years before it. If you ask anyone who's worked on their first album, you'll hear that that first album represents their whole journey trying to get there. And that's usually why people's first albums are so fucking dope. You know, it's the second albums that they go through the pain, you know, because the labels end up rushing you and blah, blah, blah. We'll get to that. But that first album... All we wanted to do was really show people internationally, give them like a little glimpse of what our shows were like, you know, and because it was a double album, we were able to like have like the Tramp versions, the you know, the Tramps nightclub version with with uh, De La Soul, which was more intimate and in a club. And then this larger like Shea Stadium with Keith, you know, with Keith, with cool Keith as a way to kind of project ourselves forward, like where we were trying to head, you know, to like some big concert hall. Um, but it was, it was amazing, man. We had, I mean, look, if you count the amount of MCs that are on that album, it probably is a fucking world world record, you know, for MCs and especially the quality of MCs, you know, not only was it a double album that the skits on that album, we had a skit that had, or not even a skit, but we had a cipher that was on that album that had about eight MCs, ten MCs, just on one sketch. You know, yeah. we had a, a cipher skit that was like, you know, the stretch. It was like a remake of Stretch and Bobito, and we had Black Thought and Common. Man, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that album now because I swear it's like we put so much work into that that man man it's just uh it's just phenomenal bro it was we were kids we had no idea what we were doing i have to repeat that over and over again because you know some people think you have to be perfect to get out there in this world and i know the millennials of today don't feel that way but back then you know it was a lot of like trying to be perfect um and uh we um we created something great that was basically a snapshot of what we were up to all those years and if and if you really want to understand what i'm saying just look at the liner notes you know look at the the cover you know that whole album cover that was made by echo who i met at uh maddie c's office at the source 
who was running unsigned hype, you know, Maddie C had a motherfucking fax on his wall. Mark Echo faxed Maddie C some art. Wow. You know, he was just an artist. He was like, oh, maybe this guy will like it. And Maddie had it up on his fucking wall. We came to have a meeting, and it's the same meeting that Maddie introduced us to Biggie. Uh, mob deep he put us in contact with all the right people and then on the way out i saw this art on the wall i was like yo who made that and he was like i don't know this kid named echo and i was like yo that's dope and my smart ass looked at the bottom of the facsimile and there's a fucking number on every fax right and so i took the number i went back to our office and i hand wrote a note to mark and i was like yo i saw your art at Maddie's office, and I own the Lyricist Lounge with my partner Danny. We're looking for somebody to make flyers for us, <laughs> and and he, I was like, "Here's my number. Call me when you get it." So he called me. We set up a meeting. He came to the office, and that was the beginning of a friendship. You know, what I'm saying, in a business relationship. From there, he began doing our our. Uh, he began doing like live banners for us at the shows which I wish I knew where those fucking banners were. But he did a banner for us at a supper club, a supper club event that we did. And then he launched his clothing line. Excuse me. He launched his clothing line. From there, we ended up doing... um, He he did it first. He did a a mixtape called Underground Airplay. And mm, I think yeah. he didn't really like how I think he liked how it came out, but I think he realized how much work really goes into that. And so he came to us and was like, look, you know, I did one side. Maybe y'all could do the other side. And we were like, cool. And we did we did a side. We did some fucking groundbreaking ciphers that you can hear on YouTube right now. Uh, look for underground underground airplay volume one. Um, and then from there, he just we just did a deal where we would do all of that, all of the fucking tapes. And every time you bought a T-shirt, you would get a tape for free. And so that helped us become more national, international. And that helped him, again, back in the 90s, where, you know, white boys weren't really completely accepted in the culture. That gave him um, basically credibility. You know what I'm saying? That gave him street cred. That gave him, you know, like something to stand on. And then we became his like first sales team. We went to Jack the Rapper with him selling shit. So now you come to the booth and you see black Puerto Rican and a Jewish dude, you feel more comfortable. If it was just all Jewish dudes there, that would be a whole different vibe for people. You know what I'm saying? It's not it's not 2020 back then, right? And right. so we were we were we kind of we helped each other. In a lot of ways, we all helped each other. I'm super appreciative of, of all that we were able to do together back then. Um, and yeah, man, it, it's so that kind of led to us being ready to make an album. And so we started developing this idea of making an album. We shopped it to a bunch of people. Uh, we had an office on the same floor. Uh, Forte was running the, the, the raucous studio. Their music studio, John Forte was running their music studio. And so, you know, he told us about Raucous. And then, yeah, somehow we got in and had a meeting. And I'll never forget, like, talking to them. And they kept talking and talking and talking. And I kind of zeroed in on one of them. And I kind of knew ahead of time. But I was like, yo, what's, what's your last name? And he's like, huh? I was like, what's your last name? And he was like, Murdoch. 
I was like, okay, Murdoch, mm-hmm. like, your pops is Rupert Murdoch, right? And he's like, yeah. I was like, all right, cool, let's do it. <laughs> you know, and this was way before Fox being the evil Fox News it is. But it was just the fact that this man had a pop who was so fucking powerful in the market. And I knew there was some real money behind them, you know, on some in, in, instinct type shit. It, it just felt right. You know what I'm saying? And that, it, it was stupid of me, like, looking back, you know, as a 46-year-old, I wouldn't be like, what's your last name? Rupert Murdoch's your dad? Okay, cool. Let's do the deal. <laughs> but, you know, but back then, ruckus didn't mean shit. You know what I'm saying? It was more important that I knew this that his last name was Murdoch than oh I'm excited to sign the Ruckus. Remember, in a lyricist lounge context, the legends are not legends. They're just regular people. You know what I'm saying? So they had a one group called well two groups. One named Plastique, which was like a uh, indie indie rock band, and they had this other group called Company Flow. Did you trust Rokus? I didn't trust any of those motherfuckers, man. Rule number 3080, <laughs> record companies are shady, yeah. you know. So we came in there, hardcore on negotiation, you know, 50-50 deal, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, we, we, we wanted to launch a label, not just sign an album, you know. And so we launched a label called Open Mic Records, and our first record was Universal Magnetic MCs by Most Def. And mm-hmm. so... What they did, though, is after that, they went around us and um, they went around us and offered most a deal without talking to us about it. And and that's why you can't trust motherfuckers, because, you know, legally, no, they didn't have to say anything to us. Right. But hip hop is not all about legalities. You know what I'm saying? Hip hop is like old school, like handshakes. And like real men looking real men in the eyes, you know what I'm saying, and doing what's right. At least the hip hop I come from, you know, things have changed. But like, you know, when we were a small collective, you know, I, okay, cool, I'm down to do that song with you. It wasn't about like getting contract up to do the song, you know. It was you do right by me, I do right by you, because we're a small community, and motherfuckers are crazy. So if you dick me, I may kill you period and so that was the law you know what i'm saying it was the wild wild west like don't fuck me because i will find you you know and you know there's been a lot of times of things like that where you know life or certain scenarios pushed me to a point where i really wanted to kind of like go completely gangster on motherfuckers but you know i'm no suge knight and i always had to kind of like take a step back take a step back, ask myself if it's, if it's worth it. And even though they, they did what they did, I won't say that they jerked us, but that was um, not cool when we brought that fucking record to their fucking label and when our album brought so much power to their company. Even when you look at, like, when you look at, uh, what's the other album that they put out? Um, the other mixtape mixed albums compilation album i'm sorry i'm I'm blanking out um there's another album that they put out that everybody was was we're always kind of going crazy over um but it was like it was like a compilation and you know i always felt like they were trying to like they kind of took our concept you know 
not kind of. Yeah, they did. They completely took our concept of like a compilation of underground MCs. Oh, you're talking about sound bomb. I'm talking about sound bomb. Right. And shout course. out to any artist that was on that project, groundbreaking project, ain't trying to take nothing from it. But it was a complete copy of the lounge, but done with West Coast and, and other folks. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, and so it was almost like they were like, well, who else could we do something like this with? You know? And again, so when you ask, do you, do I trust, you know, it's like, you know, this industry is just fucked up, bro. And, but I always live by like, nobody could jerk you. You jerk yourself. You know what I'm saying? Because you gotta, you gotta handle your business in a way that doesn't get you jerked. You know, you gotta read the contracts. You gotta, you know, do deals that are like non-compete deals or like, yo, you can't create another fucking compilation that's like this if we sign with you. You know, like you have to be smart. And we were still learning, you know. And so, yeah, they signed most F around us. And we even went back to them. And we're like, yo, we heard that you, you know, offered most a deal. We want to be a part of that album. They were like, well, it's not up to us. You're going to have to ask him, which is bullshit. And we just kind of like washed our hands of it all. You know what I'm saying? We were like, most didn't tell us and he didn't tell us and, and they didn't tell us. You know what I'm saying? So f fuck all of it. You know what I'm saying? Like we wished them well. Y'all go on and make that album. And they did. It was a classic project. Um, mm. But it was a rub. It was a rub. But, you know, our album came out and did really well. And we ended up having the MTV show. We just kept we just kept it moving, bro. Like we could have definitely been on some real like fucked up vibe shit and being real upset and blah blah blah, but we just kept it cool. We kept the peace and we just kept it moving, you know. But yeah, Rue thousand three, what is it, four thousand and eighty or three thousand and eighty? One, right? It's a rule. It's a rule. It's a rule. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And it means these motherfuckers are shady. One of the guys from Raw, because at that time I always felt should have went further, was Mike Zoot. Could you talk about the track all on my own and making that track? Ooh, Mike Zoot. Still one of my favorite records. Still one of my favorite records. Um, actually, that record was one that he had made on his own, and we just kind of put it on the album. The album was unique where maybe six or eight songs were songs that we went in the studio and produced um as well as volume two but the rest were songs that we heard and we felt good about and so we would just mix them and then add them to the album what were those six to eight songs that you produced for the album versus the songs that you found and added to the album yeah no it was a big percentage that we found versus created you know but some of the groundbreaking like body rock we we created manifesto we created holy water we created uh society we created by problems um probably a lot more a few more that i don't remember by the way by the way body rock is one of the greatest cross regional joints of all time how does that come about tell me about body rock man man that was that was us in like really being like great visionaries you know we thought of well it kind of started with most right we were like all right there's most right he's he's someone that really represents the brand well he's someone that's like a mainstay he's on his way to like growing and, and blowing up and then we were like well who else do we like we should put someone on here from the west coast and we had always been lovers of alcoholics especially tash like he's he's just a 
He's just a he's a wild motherfucker, and we just always loved his energy. Shout out to Jay to all of them. Um, but we're like, let's get Tash, and then we were like, okay, Tash most, but who else? And I think somehow Q-Tip came up because we were thinking of a number of different people, but you know the way we were smart because the way we would do it, we would set things up in a way where you kind of couldn't say no, right? Most was fucking with with Q-Tip. They were both like practicing Islam at the time. They were pretty close. You know, and so we knew that, you know, if we already had most on the record, that that would be an easy yes for Q-Tip as long as we could get the money together. <clears throat> and, and so that's kind of how that came together. And, you know, flew Tash out all in the studio um, and bang that shit out, bro. It was a fucking it was uh, it was such a legendary fucking record to the point that when the record came out. You know, and obviously it was being played everywhere. Um, this girl um, and a friend of hers were playing this song all the time in the car. You know, body rock, body rock, body rock, body rock. And fast forward, um, that same girl I ended up marrying. <laughs> and it's always oh, funny shit. that when we talk about it, you know, um, that there's this whole kind of like comedy around wow look at look at how divine timing things are you know because that was like their favorite song forever and you know and she's not even a big hip-hop head um, and i remember one day she was like whistling the song and like all right okay okay and i was like you you do know where that out that song comes from right and she's like huh i was like you know where that song comes from right she's like yeah i mean most deaf I was like, that's my record. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that's my song. Like, that was on my classic album, you know? Like, she's like, oh, wow, that's, you know, women, they don't, <laughs> shout out to all the right. women that don't care about hip hop, you know? Because it was like, <laughs> oh, okay, that's cool. Pass me the corn, you know? Uh, but yeah, man, it, it's it's all really, really, really connected. Uh, yeah. But Brother Luke, I could do this for two more hours, but I, my kids can't. Totally understood. Totally understood. Listen, thank you for joining us on Fly Fidelity. On behalf of everybody listening, we want to thank you for caring about the texture of hip-hop culture and upholding the characteristics that we feel make up the best of what hip-hop mm -hmm. is today. Much respect and thank you for the interview. We will talk soon, I'm sure. Hey, no problem, brother. And look, let's do it again. Let's... Let's call this part one. I mean, I do have 30 years of stuff, so it's hard to fit all of that into one setting. Let's do part two. Let's talk about the TV show. Let's talk about the tours. And let's talk about the future because where we are right now in this current time with COVID and coronavirus, like this is really going to affect our culture in ways that we can never imagine. And it's very important that we as a hip-hop community globally truly 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 come together not for the music but to save not only the culture but to save our lives you know um it's very likely that the economic tsunami that is coming because of all of this will put a lot of us uh at harm's reach our families our culture everything we can imagine you know a lot of us have made our money through the club scenes the clubs will no longer be the same. Okay, so we have to reimagine, re-envision a new future for the culture, and there is no culture as tight-knit as ours. 
all right so we're in a fucking advantage place to come together and do something powerful so with that i leave all of y'all much love much blessings shout out to krs1 i hope he's still mad at me <laughs> and y'all have a beautiful fucking night